Okay. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 13. Um, while you're finding your spot, we're going to start in verse 1, but while you're finding Judges 13, um, I'm sure you've heard this illustration or story before. It's been used, I think, a lot. But there's a town, and there's um, the town gets flooded, and the residents need to evacuate. Um, but the floodwaters are rising quite rapidly, and so one particular man climbs up and gets up on top of his roof to get away from the floodwaters, and he's a he's a person who believes that believes in God and believes in prayer, and he prays that God would save him from this flood, and as the waters continue to rise and become more threatening to him, um, somebody in a boat, rowboat of some sort, comes by and offers to take him to safety. And the guy declines and says, that's okay. I trust in God. He's going to save me, so I, I'm, I'm waiting on him. And then some time passes, and the water continues to rise, and another person in a boat comes by and offers to take him to safety, and he does the same thing. He declines you know, declares to him that he trusts that God is going to deliver him. Um, so the guy goes on, and the guy on the roof prays again that God would save him, and then as the waters get to the point where they're reaching the roof level, a helicopter comes over and offers to take him to safety, and he declines again, and he says, it's okay, I trust that God's going to save me, and then the floodwaters rise high enough that he gets swept away and drowns. And so when he is standing before God in heaven, he's a little perturbed and he says to God, I trusted you, I declared that, you, that I trusted you, and I prayed and asked you to save me, and you didn't save me. And God said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter, what more do you need? And I think, I think, we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to cry out to God, but maybe not recognize his answer to that prayer. Or we trust in God, but we don't recognize when he has laid out a plan to take care of the request that we had or something like that. Um, and there are things that, there are things that can block our understanding of or, or block our ability to hear and understand God's word when we're what God is speaking to us in His word when we read it, uh, to be able to um, get in tune with God when we are praying. Um, you know, sin can certainly block that, but um, but we we are people who are constantly crying out and in need of something, and God is constantly a God who is merciful and providing a way. We see that in the judges, in, in the account of the, the Israelites, constantly straying from God, but then crying out to God for help, and God always delivering, always bringing a way for them to be rescued. 
This account today, though, is a little different. So let's read Judges chapter 13. Um, and we'll see that God is not different, but the Israelites have changed some. So if you're able to stand, would you please stand as we read God's word and we honor him? All right. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I, I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of, the, of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the man who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I've told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we, we've gone through Judges. We thank you that we've continued to see your hand of mercy. And as we get into this, the last judge that we'll be spending some time in because it it's a lengthier account in the book. Um, I pray that we continue more and more um, as this particular situation is a little bit different than what we've seen so far and I think demonstrates even more your unconditional, unending love. So open our hearts and minds to see that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, so I do need to say, before we get into the, anything with the notes, I do need to say that I, I need to correct something I said last week, because last week when I was talking about how the Israelites had changed and had become comfortable with their um, enslavement to the Philistines, and one of the things I, I, was, 
I was wanting to point out the fact that um, that they don't cry out to God for deliverance, but I accidentally lumped together what tends to be lumped together throughout Judges and said that they that they didn't, it doesn't even tell us that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and I realized that afternoon that I'd said that, and I was like, I got to correct that. So I, I don't want to misrepresent scripture. I didn't intend to say that because we see that in the very first verse. All right, so point number one, similarities between the births of Samson and Jesus. Similarities between the births of Samson and Jesus. I, Samson is not usually compared with Jesus or they're not usually placed together in conversation because Samson's character was, well, not stellar, we'll say. Um, but there are a lot of similarities that we're going to look at in this beginning of chapter 1. In the setting of the judges, though, Samson is the only chosen servant who's declared to be Israel's deliverer before he's even born. All the other ones were called when they were old enough to, they were adults and could have stepped into that role instantly. But Samson is called to be Israel's deliverer before he's even born. And of all the cases in the Bible when God opens the womb of a barren woman and allows her to conceive, there's only one other place when an angel visits the woman personally to tell her about what, he, what God is going to do. And that other w situation is when Gabriel visited the Virgin Mary to tell her that she would bear God's son in Luke chapter 1. And like Samson, as Samson laid down his life in the act of deliverance from Philistine bondage, which we will get to in weeks to come, Jesus would also lay down his life to deliver us from our bondage to sin. So there's some similarities here in the situation. God has set him apart before he's even born and so God sees it proper to do so and also sees it proper to mark Samson's life as one who is set apart for service to the Lord. So God tells Samson's mother he is to be a Nazarite. The word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir and it means dedicated or consecrated. Dedicated or consecrated. The Nazarite vow was a vow that abs to abstain from anything uh, from the grapevine, so no wine, um, but what is also included as we read through the text, the angel said um, no fermented drink as well, so any form of that. No wine, no grape juice, no grapes, no raisins, not even grape seeds or grape skins, which not sure why anybody would want to eat grape skins, but they weren't allowed to. So that they weren't allowed to have, they were to abstain from anything from the grapevine. They were not allowed to touch a dead body, and they were not allowed to cut their hair. In fact, the Hebrew wording in Numbers chapter 6, where we read about the Nazarite vow when God first tells us people about it, um, the, the Hebrew word about the hair not being cut is a word that describes it as being wild. 
And so it was the wild hair that served as a symbol of the vow that was taken. There are times in the New Testament, Jesus says things like, you know, don't, don't do your good deeds for people to see. And so, like, if you're fasting, you know, you should still be washing your face and making sure that people can't just tell. And you're not going around all, like, mopey because you're trying, you want people to know. But there were times in the Old Testament when God wanted specific things to be recognized. The priests had specific garments to recognize their role. And with this vow, this unruly hair is part of the what sets them apart. So God commanded Samson's parents to raise him to know and understand this vow and to teach him to keep it. Um, however, in order to keep Samson completely separate from the world, while he's in the womb, his mother is also not allowed to break uh, some of those. She had to follow some of those guidelines as well. She was not allowed to have anything to do with the fruit of the vine um, and and then just in general to not eat anything unclean. So God is separating him while he is in the womb and, and it, it, this is something that uh, that is binding upon his mother as well at least during her pregnancy. And I think the most interesting thing about that is that the Nazarite vow, if you, go, if you were to go back to Numbers chapter 6 and read it, the Nazarite vow was something that was to be, like if a man or a woman wanted to do it, it was something that was done voluntarily. It, the, the individual made a personal decision, I'm going, to, I'm going to commit this to the Lord, and I'm going to abstain from these things, and it was to be done for a certain period of time, and then when that came to an end, there were certain rituals that were in the law that they had to do to complete that, and then they could go back to, like, uh, part of the ritual is cutting your hair finally. They can go back to drinking wine, which was a staple drink for them at the time. And so, uh, but it was a personal decision made, and it was for a period of time. But with Samson, he doesn't make this decision. God, God commits him to it before he's born. And it's not just for a period of time. It is... They, Manoah's wife says to him that the angel said, um, if, you, if you're looking at chapter 1, the angel said that it, he is to be a Nazarite until the day of his death. So his whole life. Okay, so we've seen similarities between the calling and the birth of Samson and the mission and the birth of Jesus. Um, we see some similarities between Samson's mother and um, Jesus' mother Mary the angel with them uh, the angel came to the woman and it was a woman who was in the current situation a woman who biologically should not be able to conceive Manoah's wife was barren and Mary was a virgin but the angel came to a woman who biologically should be impossible for motherhood at the current at the current time and declares to the woman that they that she will have a son who will deliver God's people and in the judge's account Samson's mother plays a very important role in his life um, we mentioned earlier that she also had to take part in this with him somewhat at least during her pregnancy but if you were to if you pay attention as we go through the first um, chapter or so, 
from Judges 13, 2 to 14, 9, so a little bit more than a chapter of text, Samson's mother, though, though we don't even, we're not even given her name, but she is, she plays such an important role in this story that she is mentioned at least 19 times in that one chapter of text. She's a crucial part of his life, as Mary was a crucial part of Jesus' life, as every mother is a crucial part of a child's life. But here's the thing. Samson and his mother are not the only two that have a parallel to the account of Jesus' birth. Because both Manoah, Samson's father, and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, receive word from their wives, who again, biologically, should not be conceiving at the time, that an angel had predicted that they will conceive and give birth to a son who's going to deliver God's people from some kind of specific bondage. And so Manoah and Joseph both hear it secondhand from their wives. Well, Joseph's betrothed. Um, and both Manoah and Joseph need some extra confirmation that the Lord did in fact declare this. Um, if you remember from the Christmas story, Joseph uh, was very concerned about the situation and he had planned to quietly divorce Mary and to kind of save her from public shame. He was going to do it quietly, but he was going to cut that, that uh, end the betrothal um, and the angel comes to him in a dream and confirms what Mary had told him. Manoah also needed confirmation, and so he asks the Lord to send the messenger again so that they can learn more about this calling and what they're supposed to do. Um, now, I don't know if they didn't believe it fir at first because they didn't hear it with their own ears. That could be. Some of us are stubborn, and we need to hear and see things with our own ears and eyes before we believe them. Um, I don't know if maybe it was because the message came from a woman, and we've already talked about how, at least in the first, cent in the first century, uh, a w the testimony of a woman was not considered as, as credible as the testimony of a man. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that was a cultural thing. Um, and so I don't know if... Maybe Manoah and, and Joseph needed confirmation because it came from a woman and not from a man or, or whatever. I don't know. But what we see here in both situations is they, they, ha they have a need for a deepening and a strengthening of their faith in, in God and what God is doing. And so we see parallels with all the people involved here to the birth of account of Jesus. But there are more parallels in our text. And so point number two is the, we're going to talk about the similarities between the sin of Israel and the sin of us. So um, I, I worded it differently because I wanted to make sure that it made sense. But we're comparing Israel's sin at the time with mankind's sin um, at the time of Jesus and our day today. We've talked about 
the sin of the people at the time and judges uh, how they continue in this sin cycle, but the sin cycle is not just this two-dimensional thing that goes around. It's also a downward spiral that we're seeing them go through. Um, every, every time we advance more and more into the story of the judges, Israel's sin becomes more and more vile and they become more and more depraved. Uh, by the time the Holy Spirit stirred in Samson, they had already been oppressed by the Philistines for 20 years. And they had grown, I talked last week, they'd grown so comfortable with their enslavement that they ceased to even cry out to God for deliverance. So here's where they, here's where they differ from what we were talking about in the intro, we tend to cry out for God to del for deliverance and maybe we don't recognize it, but they became, this became the norm, being enslaved by the Philistines. It's gone on 20 years by this point. This is the new norm and they, they don't even cry out. We're not even told by the author of Judges that they ask God to deliver them. They're comfortable where they're at. In fact, this is something we will get into later, but um, as we've talked about this some last week and, so, and again today, um, when we get into the story further, we find out that when Samson begins the process of delivering them, the, people, the Israelites get upset with him because it's more comfortable to remain slaves to the Philistines than to have the Philistines angry at them. The nation's faithfulness to God was completely gone. They couldn't have abandoned their Redeemer more than they had at that time. This was the new norm, and they were fine with it. But I think we see evidence of this faulty and sinful and evil mindset um, and evidence of how this it's a downward spiral in two verses that we read in Judges, we haven't gotten to either one of them, but it will, it puts some things into perspective once you get to them. Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25, the verses are identical. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And I want you to look at that statement for what it is, because the people, the people were living their lives and they were making decisions, and they were processing thoughts, and they were filling their minds, and they were using their time, and they were parenting their children, and they were interacting with people, and they were working, doing their jobs, and they were devoting themselves and investing their souls, and God doesn't even cross their minds. In, they, in, that, in those days, they had no king, and they did as they saw fit. It doesn't say that they tried to please God the best they could. It doesn't say in, with, in the midst of lack of everyday leadership, like a king might be or something like that, that they, that they sought out the Lord and maybe fell short. It doesn't say that. It says that they did whatever they wanted to. So they go through all these things that, are, that make up your everyday life, and God isn't even part of that. Do you remember years ago, there were 
No. This is far enough ago that teenagers in here might not know. But you remember years ago the bracelets that people would wear? Little rubber bracelets that said WWJD on them. Um, and the concept behind wearing that was it was supposed to be a reminder. If you're being tempted with something or you're facing a decision of some sort, you, you were supposed to be able to look down at that and be reminded and ask yourself, in this current situation, what would Jesus do? Um, and honestly, like, I mean, nobody wears those bracelets anymore, but that is really kind of how we should be governing our lives. Everything that we do in life, we should be thinking, how would God do this? How do we please God in this? How do I take this current situation and use it as an act of worship? Nobody at the time in Judges, by the time you get to Samson, nobody's asking themselves, what would God do? Or what would God want me to do in this situation? Because God was the furthest thing from their minds. They were a depraved nation of people. So when Jesus came 1,400 years later, as we are comparing the times, and we look at the people of that time, the spiritual health of mankind hadn't improved any from the time of the judges. It hadn't improved any, um, it really hasn't improved any to this day <laughs> from the time of the judges. Um, I, I, in fact, I would probably argue that it were worse. I, I think when we look around at the world, we see utter depravity. People today are committing offenses against God and against mankind that I think would have probably shocked the Israelites of the time of the judges. And yet they were so depraved that God was not even a part of them. So if that helps put some things into perspective about the, the health, the spiritual health and the state of mankind in our day, I think that picture, which was so bad, they would probably be shocked at us. And as I told you in the beginning, that uh, at the very beginning of the study, that we would see God's heart of mercy and love. What we see when you fast forward 1,400 years is the fullest measure of that mercy and love on the cross when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus rather than on each person for their individual sin. Jesus took all of that himself and we saw God's wrath poured out and eventually satisfied. But it's because we aren't any different than the people of the time of the judges. And what's more, Paul tells us that that, the stuff we're reading about in Judges back at this point, the stuff at the time of Jesus, and the stuff that we see in the world today, Paul says that's what we were, that's what you and I were before we surrendered our life to Christ. We were completely cut off from God's presence 
we were no different than the Israelites at the time of Samson. We're no different than mankind at the time of Jesus. And we're really no different than the world around us today is if we don't have redemption in Christ. Or as vile as the sin is in our world today, if we weren't redeemed, if we didn't, if we hadn't surrendered to Christ, if we weren't convicted on a multi, um, m- multiple times every day, day in and day out by the Holy Spirit that's dwelling in us, then we would be just as depraved as the world in which we live. I can't really explain it any better than Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you, it's on the screen if you need to, but if you want to use your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't want you to become... I don't want to always put it up on the screen and get people used to not ever using their Bibles to forget where places are. We can't be doing that. But I want you to follow along with this one because it's lengthy. It's nine verses. But Paul, I can't explain it better than Paul does here. So read this with me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. So just take note there that he has just gone through, he's gone through Three verses. And he and he's pounding this idea. You were dead. You had transgressions and sins. You used to live in this way like the world. The ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He's talking about Satan there. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, he goes on, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So that's a really grim picture. But because of his great love for us, so you got that word but, which is a transition. This is what you were. However, we're changing here. Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Israel, at the time of the judges, this was them. Dead in their transgressions, they were completely cut off from God. God had become completely absent from their lives in every way. And yet, 
God was merciful and he raised up, called and raised up Samson to deliver them. And the time of Jesus, that's what mankind was completely cut off from God and God raised up Jesus to deliver them. And you and I were like this, completely cut off from God until God extended his mercy and his grace through Christ and we received it and surrendered to him. All three situations are a picture of a people who are helpless. They cannot fix their situation. And so God had to rescue them. And so we'll just, I'll close with this. Um, it's on the one before. It's okay. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And this picture that Paul paints that we have been seeing in the time of the judges as we've studied. And it's a picture that Paul was painting in the first century, but if he was writing in our time, it wouldn't be any different. And we witness that all around us as we engage with non-believers at work or at school or just out at the grocery store and we see the depravity we watch the news and you can't help but see the depravity of mankind i'm thankful that we've all been exposed to the gospel and that we understand that we have there's a rescue plan because we are unable to fix it we cannot get to you if we don't have Christ. And so I'm thankful for that. We rejoice in that today, and we look forward to the blessings that you will show us in this life, but ultimately the blessings that await us when you take us home to be with you for all of eternity. But there's a world around us that is dying in that desperate situation, and they need to know your son. And as you called Samson to deliver your people and you called Jesus to deliver your people, you've now called us to be a part of that work to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I fear that we sometimes are callous toward those who stand in opposition to you and are antagonistic toward the church. And I pray that you would soften our hearts to you and make our hearts like yours because your heart is a heart of mercy and love that longs for those people to surrender to you. So as your messengers, as the people you've called to be a part of your kingdom work, we need our hearts to be softened to you and to reflect yours and to be burdened for those people the way you are. And so we pray for that today.